like his own defense lawyer said it was apparent that he had, he had acquired a brain injury from his consumption of drugs from you know right through his teenage years he stabbed her 19 times it's one of these horrific tragic crimes there were people with you know severe personality disorders that just simply couldn't be trusted not to try and resolve every little slight with some kind of violence you know it really begs the question of what you do with people like this i'm nicola talent and you're listening to crime world a podcast about criminals drugs and the sins of the underworld in ireland and across the globe they are two of ireland's most dangerous offenders but both have just walked free from jail and are now living again amongst communities Kaylin Aiden stabbed his mother to death and racked up 15 unprovoked assaults behind bars, where he was treated in the National Violence Reduction Unit at the Midlands Prison. While Anthony Quigley has repeatedly attacked women and has been diagnosed with a brain injury. Last week, he returned to his native Mitchellstown in Cork, where locals are living in fear of him. Today, I'm talking to Sunday World journalist Eamon Dillon about these dangerous criminals, what risks they pose to society and how the state can best handle people at the extreme end of personality disorders. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Eamon, you described Caelan Aidan on Sunday in the Sunday World as Ireland's most violent inmate. Um... So how come he is no longer an inmate and he's walking free? And, and how violent, just how violent is this guy? Well, unfortunately, he developed a reputation while he was in prison for, you know, extreme, being extremely violent and volatile. Uh, like it came out there during his recent appeal uh, that he had he'd been involved in 15 assaults in prison, 10 of which are against um, uh, prison staff. He'd actually been, he'd been, kept in the National Violence Reduction Unit, which was basically a unit set up in the Midlands prison campus for, you know, prisoners such as these who just, you couldn't have them mixing with general population. That You know, they weren't necessarily gangland figures or anything like that, but there were people with, you know, severe personality disorders that just simply couldn't be trusted not to try and resolve every little slight with some kind of violence. Uh, and the, the reason he got out is that... Um, well, he, he was initially he, he was initially um, convicted of the murder of his mother. He stabbed his mother to death nineteen. He stabbed her nineteen times. It was one of these horrific, tragic crimes. Um, she she had been trying to you know help him, and she had actually burned his stash of drugs at their home in Castle Bar. And when he when he discovered this, he obviously lost all reason or whatever reason he had left, and killed her. Her her, her body was found by her, his younger brother. She was slumped in a pool of blood. It was just one of these horrific cases. Um, and he's been in prison since then. He's he served, you know, just over 10 years. Um, but in 2019, he, he won his case, uh, he, he won his appeal, rather, uh, against the murder conviction, and it was downgraded to manslaughter. So uh, there was a his sentence hearing for that was earlier this year. Uh, you know, and he kept re- repeatedly asking the judge at the time, when's my release date? When's my release date? So, you know, so it didn't really bode well for somebody accepting authority. So his release date, as it turns out, then was was last um, just last Wednesday. So he's out and about now. Uh, you know, even, even the method, the way he was taken from the prison, normally these guys, they walk out the gate. Um, you know, they're either picked up by family or friends, sometimes a social worker, sometimes they just walk to a bus stop 
wait for a bus, you know, they get their bus ticket, they'll, they'll head off down to the train station, get a train. Uh, but he was taken with a prison escort to to some, I think, to uh, a convent in Clondalkin or a religious building in Clondalkin. And from there, then, he was taken to an apartment in, in Dublin city centre. And, and when he arrived there, one of our photographers, like we obviously had the information, one of our photographers was saying that, you know, he arrived with a number, quite a number of individuals. I think they were actually, I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure there were prison staff at this stage, but they were either, you know, social workers or volunteers from a, from a charity or from a religious group. But in the meantime, there was also undercover guards in the area that were keeping an eye on it, like such as the danger that he poses to members of the public. And, you know, it really begs the question of what you do with people like this, um, you know, that... You've never obviously seen a release along these lines before? Well, not really. I mean, you, you've had... There, there have been one or two others, um, but they're, they're very... They, they are unusual. Um, it, uh, like, you know, and I, I suppose steps were being taken to make sure that, you know, to, I suppose to, to lessen the danger to the public. Um, you didn't necessarily want this guy walking downtown or walking into, you know, downtown Port Leash and wandering around and then getting into trouble like within hours and, and somebody possibly getting badly injured. So, I mean, they did take those steps to at least avert that, to have some kind of, you know, attempt at, at trying to get him to, to settle into, you know, what's going to be his, his new life. So just before we go into a little bit more detail about Caelan Aiden, I just want to explain for those who maybe don't quite understand what happened as regards his conviction and his sentencing. So he was initially tried or pleaded guilty to murder. I presume he was tried. Very few people plead guilty to it. And he was convicted of murder. And murder carries with it a life sentence. The average life sentence is 18 years, but it's up to the discretion of the parole board when somebody is released. If they're seen as being remorseful, um, you know, not a danger to society, they may be released a little bit earlier than that, but usually most of them serve 18 years. Some can serve literally life. Uh, we know of prisoners in Ireland who've served up to 40 years. Um, what happened in his case was similar to we saw with Brian Rattigan, the gangland criminal recently, who was also serving life in prison, having been convicted of murder. They He appealed, Caelan Aidan's uh, um, lawyers appealed that case. They obviously saw either an error in judgment or in the way the original conviction had been found in the original trial. Every person with uh, lawyers are going to look for reasons to appeal these cases. Most cases are, most convictions, especially murder ones, are appealed. Very few of them are overturned. Nonetheless, his was overturned. And instead of going through another murder trial, which is very costly, very long, and the courts are, are very packed at the moment, the state accepted a guilty plea to manslaughter. Now, manslaughter is a lesser charge. It means that while there has been a killing uh, involved, it wasn't pre-planned and premeditated in the same way murder is. And as a result, it's seen as a slightly lesser crime. Um, there can be different scales of manslaughter and it can carry, I think, up to life imprisonment itself. In this case, Aidan got 14 years and because he'd already served 10 and with remission, that's why he got out. So a bit long-winded, but just in case people were a little bit confused about that. Now going back to him, so he was 19 when he stabbed his mother to death. Like, how does that happen? He doesn't wake up one morning and, and become that person. What, what, 
what was going on in his background or what do we know about his, his previous life to that? His is a story, I suppose, of, of a parent's worst nightmare. Um, he started abusing substances from a very young age. They, they were talking about him glue sniffing at the age of 10. So, I mean, like at one of the court hearings, it basically, it, it, was, it was said that he, he had suffered, um, like his own defence lawyer said, it was apparent that he had, he had acquired a brain injury from his consumption of drugs from, you know, right through his teenage years. You know, like teenagers' brains are still forming at that age. Um, and if you introduce a lot of, um, you know, dangerous chemicals into that mix, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna cause serious problems. And in his case, it's a, it's a permanent brain injury. And he, he obviously his his uh, his use of drugs escalated after uh, like I mean after he'd killed his mother like you know he ran I think in just his underpants ended up in near a neighbor's house uh, when he, he when he was brought to hospital he, they tested him for he was positive then for I think uh, uh, amphetamines methamphetamines and cannabis uh, you know he he was he was he was he was raving like you know he was hallucinating like he he just you know he he just wasn't I suppose you know, in any sense, rational. Um, and, you know, and this is at the age of 19. So, I mean, you know, he, he, he'd obviously got to the, the, to the point where, you know, the drugs and the drugs use had actually completely, you know, destroyed his cognitive functions and his ability to, to realise what was going on. And I think that was the reason why he was acquitted of the murder charge, that this, I think the terminology they use was gross intoxication and that he therefore, he couldn't, he, like he was basically so out of it, on drugs, uh, you know, after this years-long binge that he couldn't have formed the intent to kill his mother. And, and in fairness to, I think, I th- there, there was, um, you know, in fair, like his father actually said, yeah, like he gave a victim impact statement and he said he didn't blame him uh, for what had happened and he's sure that his mother would have actually forgiven him for what he'd done. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had she had been trying to get him mm. help. Uh, like Noreen Kelly's his mother who, who, who died and her partner at the time, uh, who's not Kenan Aiden's uh, father, uh, uh, Michael Kelly, at the inquest, he had said that, you know, that Kaylin's mother, uh, you know, had been, uh, you know, had been at district court, had brought him, you know, he, he, he was up in a charge of failing to appear. And, and the judge had ordered, like, you know, a 10-day detention, and during which time he was to get a psychiatric evaluation. And that didn't happen. So, like, he was suggesting that it's quite possible that he could have been inside when he killed his mother if... The warrants had been executed, and for whatever reason it happened, it fell through the cracks at the time. So I mean, you know, it's such a tragic story. Mm. But now the, the reality is, is that he's done his time, um, and he hasn't unfortunately changed for the better in any way. Um, his last conviction for assault came last May, mm-hmm. uh, when he punched a prison a member of the prison staff in the back of the head while he was handcuffed. So you know, it's, it's, he's quite a he's quite a, a volatile and impulsive sort of character. Let's go into the details of some of those assaults that he carried out in prison. But just before we do, was that a medical diagnosis that he had a brain injury caused by heavy drug use? And was that drug use mainly cannabis, like weed? No, he, he was, I, th- I think when he, when he was tested in hospital at time, it was more than just cannabis. It was methamphetamines and amphetamines. Um, and it does sound like, you know, he was... He was going through a wide amount. Obviously, he was assessed, uh, you know, in, in, you know, for, for the murder trial. I mean, don't forget that's back in in 2011, 2010, I think. Uh, and you know, it's and, and one of the things about these these diagnoses, it's not necessarily uh, you know a mental health issue. Um, and again, like you know, having had a quick read up on some of this, and like, and I've heard mentioned in previous court cases that 
you know, a person, personality disorder as such isn't necessarily a mental health issue because you're not going to, you're, you're not, you can't cure it. It's just, it's, it's the way, it's the way you are. Um, but, you know, and, and they kind of, I think, you know, sometime around the early 90s, they, they started to come away from this idea that personality disorders are totally incurable, but they do require sort of very intense therapy and can take a number of years. So this is the sort of, this is the sort of therapy that prisoners and the, the National Violence, or the National Violence Reduction Unit in, in the, the, the Irish Prison Service, that's the sort of the attention they get. Like, you know, that there is kind of, you know, uh, highly trained uh, prison staff with, you know, years of experience alongside uh, psychiatrists, presumably, and psychologists that are there to try and help these, you know, particularly violent prisoners to recognise their behaviours and to try to get them to adjust or change the way they, they do things. Um, but like, it, but it, takes a, it takes a real, it takes a huge effort. I mean, I, I wanted the at, at like at a sentence hearing, the the both the, the lawyers for both the prosecution and the defence were, were expressing concern about where he might live on his release, and the probation service, you know, had an official that previously at a, at a previous uh, court hearing or legal hearing had said that they would be on it, they're not able to provide that type of high support accommodation that environment that he needs. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, you know, potentially, you know, a personality disorder the likes that Caelan Aidan suffers from. Or has rather than suffers, uh, you know they need they need a crew of people around them at all times. You know if they're going to if, if you're going to be a hundred percent sure that they're not going to commit some kind of impulsive act of violence against some unsuspecting member of the public. So I mean it's a, it's a real. I mean, just even sorry you were go- you wanted to talk about the, some of the details of, of what happened while he was in jail. So yeah, because I do think that they show how impulsive he is. Do you know what I mean? I think that I mean these these assaults that took place are unprovoked and, um, you know, just show how easily he snaps. But but go ahead and just go through. Yeah, well, well, it's not not a huge amount of detail, to be honest. But, I mean, there was the one where, I mean, like, I know he headbutted a senior member of staff who was talking to him, trying to keep him calm at the the time. Um, I know of another story where, you know, he had managed to... to, um, to find a piece of a window frame that was quite heavy, which presumably... You know, they immediately suspected he was going to use this as a, a you know, a potential weapon at some point. Uh, he threw boiling water at a prison officer when he was in Mount Joy at one time, for which he got two and a half years at the time. Uh, in another case, he, he attacked one one member of staff in Wheatfield and another prison, and causing injuries to his arm and shoulders, and also then attacked prison officers when he was being removed from his cell. I mean, he he was actually subjected to the barrier method, um, as they call it while he was in prison, which is basically if, if he's going to be moved from a cell or be taken anywhere, he's escorted by a team, by a control and restraint team, usually five officers, you know, one of whom will be carrying a shield and they'll all be wearing sort of tactical, you know, body armour. They'll be wearing their uh, um, helmets and gloves and so on, all their, their knee and shoulder pads. I mean, that's that was the level of, of, of kind of, I suppose, wariness that prison staff had to treat him with. And, and that went on for, you know, most of his, well, not most, but certainly for long stretches of his time inside. And, you know, the Sunday World gets criticised a lot for its reporting. But I have to say that I think uh, your reporting and the photographers who go out there and try and, and um, take images of these guys to show the public and they're risking your own 
safety by doing so. I think it is a public service because the state is not in a position to release photographs or images of these people. So, and, and you know, there's been others that we have done similar with and we have kept a kind of watching brief as a media organisation on people who are such an enormous threat to the public. So um, i just mention that, give you a little bit of a, a rubbing there, Eamon, just to... I'll start purring now in a minute, yeah. Yeah, yeah, help you along. Now, a second a second um, guy that you, you were writing about at the weekend as well, and similar, uh, Anthony Quigley, and he was mentioned in court or described in court as a menace to society. Now, the word menace suggests to me a kind of an irritating rogue and maybe somebody who's, you know, just a little bit just a little bit annoying. Whereas Quigley is anything but. I mean, he is another extremely violent individual. 26 previous convictions and he too has been released. Yeah, now, I suppose he's, in, in a sense, like he's at the other end of the scale, but he's, you know, has the potential, by the sounds of it, from what we know about him, yeah, to commit far worse, you know, acts of violence. He got out, he, he, he was serving a two-year jail sentence and he got out the same, the same week as Caelan Aidan. Um, now he's from he's from Cork. He he has fifty something convictions and twenty six of them f- were for crimes against women. And he was specifically in jail for this unprovoked assault on uh, you know a, a woman in Mitchellstown, Amanda Dunnigan, in twenty nineteen. She was you know trying to put her car into a car parking space, and he just suddenly launched himself at her. Now he claimed like he claimed without any foundation whatsoever that she had provoked the the situation by calling him names. Now, this was all shot down by, you know, eyewitnesses who were there who said, no, it was completely unprovoked. He also tried to claim then that she suffered, like, you know, he absolutely beat her, like, you know, in, as she sat in her car. She was trying to hold her dog down. Her, her dog was in the car with her and she was trying to hold the dog down from, you know, possibly uh, attacking Quigley. Um, and she was absolutely battered. We had pictures of the injuries that she suffered at the time. I saw them. They were um, horrendous. She, she, absolutely yeah, horrendous. Yeah, and she was... She was yeah, and at the at the time of his sentence, when she got two years, she spoke um, to the media at the, uh, outside court in, in in Cork to say that she was disgusted, you know, with what she saw as the leniency of the sentence. Uh, and like this week, then I I, I contacted uh, Miss Dunnigan. She didn't want to talk. Um, like when I was down in Mitchellstown, there was other people that I knew knew him, and they did not want to go on the record. They were genuinely afraid of him. And one person used the used the kind of the the, the phrase, he'll start his reign of terror again. So, you know, while you're, you're looking at a very dry, you know, clinical court report of what happened in the attack on Miss Dunnigan, you're not getting that sense of the fear that he can cause in, you know, a town like Mitchellstown, where these guys, you know, they're, they're walking around and people are thinking, you know, they're going out to the shop or they're going for a drink or going to buy chips. But you have to keep your eye out and see where your man is on any given day on the basis that if you run into him, you know, something could happen. So, I mean, the, you know, he, he's he's in one sense, he's very much at the lower end, you know, in terms of violence compared to Kaylin Aiden. But it's the same problem. And that was mentioned in one of his court hearings that, you know, that he suffered a brain injury uh, when, when, he, when he was a young man. And that, like, a, a, I think he was only 19 or 20 when this happened. And, you know, it, as the phrase was used, it left him cognitively impaired and prone to impulsivity. So obviously he'd suffered some kind of, you know, uh, permanent brain damage. Now, there, there was mention that he had, you know, he'd been in a coma as a result of this car crash. But, you know, you, you, you just, you, you wonder, like, you know, what can be done in terms of, 
I, I know there's been other cases which you can't really get into the details of because the person involved is, I think, facing charges. But there is, there has been cases where the High Court have been asked to, to you know, order a pre- preventative detention of somebody who's likely to commit acts of violence. But there's nothing, there's nothing in law that, that, you know, we can do that. And that's probably for a good reason that you'd be worried that these type of things could be abused. But, it, you know, it is, it's this frightening thing if you think that there's this absolute loose, loose cannon, you know, walking the streets of your town or your neighbourhood in your city, which there now are two of them this week that weren't there before and who are both capable of serious violence. And quickly seems to be impulsive uh, selectively with women. But anyway, we'll just park that. But he, did you, can I ask guys, photograph him in Mitchellstown or how far did you get? No, we didn't get him in Mitchellstown. But do you do you believe he's gone back there or do you know where he is? Um, yeah, no, apparently he is He is back in Mitchellstown. I mean, that's, 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 that's the information we have at the minute. Um, like we believe that he was he would have been, he was collected by uh, you know possibly a relative in in Port Leash uh, last week as well and, and taken home. Mm-hmm. So I mean you know you know again I don't think he's necessarily a person of great resources that he would necessarily have uh, you know any choice about where to go and live. I mean, sometimes you know so as I, as I kind of mentioned earlier sometimes you see some of these guys with, with that sort of offending in the, because he's also a sex offender Quigley. Um, like one, one of his one of his things was, uh, you know, getting on buses and and you know talking inappropriately inappropriately to to uh, to some teenage girls, and uh, you know really making them feel uncomfortable. And then there was kind of you know touching of thighs and buttocks and this sort of thing. He, he's you know he, he's such a he's such a you know a nuisance. Uh, you know a, a, you know to call him a sex pest is a bit you know it, it sounds dismissive. I mean it must be absolutely terrifying to be stuck on a bus. And, you know, with this big guy, he is a big guy, you know, uh, coming in and squeezing into the seat beside you totally. if you're a young, a teenage you're a young girl. woman. I mean, or even, even if you're a middle-aged woman or yeah. even just a regular guy and this guy gets in, you know, it's the only way out of it is to, to run. He sounds like the sort of guy that doesn't do the same impulsive behaviour with men of his own size in areas where maybe he, he, he would be safe. But anyway... Um, We'll move on from that. Look, I recall years ago, the Sunday World again, you guys been after a fella called Paul Moore, week in, week out, a serial rapist who had uh, in 95 raped a woman, got seven years, been released in 2001, raped a woman, got 10 years, got released in 2015, sexually assaulted three women. And I remember you guys were out, you know, you'd get a tip off where he was, he'd be out, he'd be trying to chat up women in pubs and you'd sort of wait outside and he'd see you photographing him and he'd run for the hills. And But it was absolutely chaotic and he was a massive danger to women around the city of Dublin. He was living in an apartment, he hadn't a bob, he was a drinker. I think he was supposed to be banned from alcohol because that's when he got became really dangerous when he drank um, now, he died in 2019 after getting cancer. And in a way, while it sounds crass, that solved the problem of Paul Moore when he died. But these other guys, I mean, you know, uh, Kayla Naden is only 29 and Anthony Quigley doesn't look like an elderly man either. I mean, they could be around for a long, long time. And it seems to me that both of them are highly likely to reoffend. In fact, it's highly unlikely that they won't reoffend. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're talking about Paul Moore there. I mean, 
if you remember the case of Alan Cawley, he's the guy who's serving life now for the murder of the Blaine brothers in Castle Bar. Now, at the, at the time, I think four days before he committed that murder, he, he had been in prison and there were, you know, concerns expressed about his, his uh, you know, suitability for being let out. And one of the things, like, he'd, he'd been convicted for was posing as a, uh, as a worker from a psychiatric hospital uh, where he conned his way in, talked his way into the house of a couple that he knew that had been treated because he had been treated in the same psychiatric unit himself. And he locked them in the bathroom and, and stole a handbag. Now, he was considered, you know, the potential for violence was there as far as, you know, people who had worked with him, you know, or dealt with him. They knew about that. And four days after he left Castlery Prison, he basically went on a drink binge. And that's when he killed the Blaine brothers. And, you know, there were two vulnerable elderly, uh, you know, pensioners living in a, a little house in the middle of Castle Bar. And, you know, it, it was an absolutely sadistic killing. Like he, he, he poured boiling water on one of them. You know, he had concocting in his head, you know, this, 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 this crazy narrative that these, these old men had attacked him when he was a child and all this sort of stuff, uh, which was honestly, it was completely unfounded. And, and then in, in, his, in his appeal in 2019, it was, it was mentioned that he had two personality disorders, uh, emotionally unstable personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder, which is basically kind of the polite term now that they no longer use psychopath mm. because it's, you know, that was seen as such a, a dreadful term to use. But basically they're people who have uh, no empathy and are unable to kind of fit in with society and, you know, just go off on their own track. I mean, they are fortunately, you know, people at this end of it, like the likes of Cawley or, or and then Kellen Aiden, which would be a very much a different diagnosis. Like they're, they're extreme. They are extreme cases. There aren't that many, but there's enough. And I think during the, like earlier this year, there was a figure of something like 70% of inmates of, in the Irish prison system have been diagnosed with a personality disorder, which sounds bad, but it's, it's estimated between four and 11% of the wider population. And, you know, because you have a personality disorder doesn't necessarily make you a danger to society. So there is that. But the amount of, you know, people then who have, you know, that inability to control their impulses or their inability to to sort of, you know, resolve an issue in a calm and, a, you know, and, and polite way or, or nonviolent way uh, is, 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 you know, it, unfortunately it's out there. And these are the people that end up, you know, behind bars, as we know. And just from life experience, really, and the job we do, I think you often find that people with those extreme personality disorders, they're probably treatable if they will themselves stay on the straight and narrow. But most of them, when you mix that with substance abuse, that's when the big problem comes in, either alcohol or drugs or whatever. Um, on the, the personality disorder issue, I think our own... Deputy Editor Niall Donald has us all diagnosed with something. He reckons that everybody has, <laughs> has something. Um, I'm kind of inclined to agree with him as well, but anyway, not to make light of it. But yeah, I think people with that, they're sort of on the extreme end of those spectrums when, when there's substance abuse. And in each of these cases we've spoken about, the substance abuse has, has you know, has has caused the, the problem to be intensified. But, I mean, finally, there's no simple answer to this, I suppose. But as a society, what can we do? How do we, how do we, you know, manage these people after they're released from prison? Or how do we... Well, like, we know, we know that, like, in the past, uh, serious sex offenders are monitored by the guards. And 
in some cases, it's a, it's a matter of, you know, they, they, they call them on the mobile phone once or twice a day and ask them, where are you now? Um, and others, you know, they, they're calling to their house once or twice a day or once a week. And in some cases, they have people following them full time, um, which, you know, which we know has happened in, in, in some of these cases that there, there you know, there is, there is guards actively monitoring and keeping an eye on certain individuals. But that is, it's, it's, you know, it's draining on resources if, you know, if there's a couple of guards that are, are keeping an eye on one potentially dangerous criminal, they're not doing something else that is needed to be done somewhere else. I mean, there's a finite number of guards. So, you know, I mean, like, you know, you see like the, you know, an enlightened country, it's often seen New Zealand as a, a place where they, they seem to treat people fairly. It's regularly cited as, as an example to Ireland and various things where you had that suspect recently who managed to stab six people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, he was a known uh, Islamic uh, sympathizer. He, he'd been stopped trying to get to Syria. And in the 60 seconds that the, the, before the police who were, who were actively following, armed police were actively following, and within 60 seconds before they shot him dead, he'd managed to stab six people, even three of them in a critical condition. So that kind of shows you the limitations. Like, you know, even if you do have a team of, of you know, highly trained armed police following somebody, there's always a potential mm-hmm. that they can still manage to do something dangerous like that. Which is, you know, if you thought about it, you wouldn't go to sleep. No, no, nor go out. But um, I suppose from a small, in a small way, I've always felt that individuals are their first line of defence and their most powerful line of defence is yourself. And sort of keeping yourself aware of your surroundings and maybe, as I said to you there earlier, the work you've done and the photographs of both these guys we've spoken about are on the Sunday World website and um, stories in relation, relation to them. And if I was living in Mitchelstown, I would log on and have a look and make sure I knew what Quigley looked like. And um, similar to um, to Kayla and Aidan, I would just have a look. And I think that there's no harm in anybody doing that. Um, and I think it is absolutely public service journalism when you go out and you try and uh, show the country what these people look like because they are dangerous to society and um, far more than the minister described as in court. So, Eamon Dillon, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.